Father, we're grateful again for your presence with us, and I pray now that you would open our hearts and minds uh, to uh, what you have to say to us through this very interesting passage of Scripture. And may we be uh, empowered, strengthened, may we be enlightened uh, to be different and to uh, act on things that maybe we haven't known before, um, so that we, as we grow in our learning, might be more and more like you want us to be and doing what you want us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So our passage this morning is uh, from the book of Acts, chapter 5, and um, this is one of the more interesting passages in Scripture um, that uh, we might wonder why it exists, and you're thankful that some of the things in this uh, passage don't continue to happen. Acts chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Now, you have to refer back to the verse at the end of chapter 4 to see why they said also. Uh, The last verse in chapter 4 says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostle called Barnabas, uh, which means son of encouragement. He's going to become important in the whole story as it unfolds in the chapters to come. He sold a field he owned, brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. So once again then, verse 1 of chapter 5 says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment... She fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Wow. What is the purpose of this passage of Scripture? I'll come back to that. Have you ever had this question asked of you? Do you know who that was? I was recently at a party and uh, was getting to know somebody I'd never met before, neighbors of this people I was at the party, and uh, uh, talking to this guy, and he came from Chester, and he, came from, he comes from Chester, and uh, he grew up in Chester when Chester was farmland. Now, that's news to some of us who have moved into this area. Chester's a very uh, exclusive and uh, desirable place to live. It used to be a bunch of farmland. And he grew up when it was that. And he was telling me all the stories about that and how his family had a farm and the different things that they did. And he worked at this feed store. And he was talking about how he worked at this feed store and there was a day when he got a little extra money 
and because uh, the the guy was very kind there, and he gives the kids like a nickel or something it's years ago, right? And he runs to the local general store because his grandfather's coming to pick him up. He's got a minute. He runs to the store. He buys himself a big candy bar. He gets turns around and he sees his grandpa's pulled up in the truck right out there, and he's got to get. He's going to be looking for him, so he goes running out the door to get to his grandfather. Smacks right into this woman and just lays her out on the ground, right? And they both go down, and one of the embarrassing moments, right? And the grandfather comes running over. What are you doing? You know, knock the lady over and everything. And she was fine. Nobody got hurt. She brushes herself off. She reassures the young boy. There's no big deal, you know. And she goes into the store. And then the grandfather looks at him and says, Do you know who that was? Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. Because she had a farm right over here. And she used to come and ride her horses. Another true story. A tall, elderly man with his elegant, white-haired wife enter a small church in the state of Maine. And he makes his way immediately to the church nursery where he takes his place on the floor playing with the children in the nursery. My pastor friend, who happened to be on vacation visiting this church for that Sunday, eventually recognized his wife who had immediately gone into the service and sat down in the back. She was Barbara Bush. And while she sat there and enjoyed the service, the former president of the United States, leader of the Western world, George Harold Walker Bush, was sitting on the floor playing with the children. Wow. Talk about bumping into greatness and not even knowing it. Do we do that? Could we spiritually be guilty of that? Have we bumped into greatness and not even known it? I want to take you back to Acts chapter 2. There we were talking about this uh, increase that God was creating in the way that we gather because he came near. And we talked about the spiritual work that this Holy Spirit does when he comes. And I told you that he, he, he does a whole bunch of things. He regenerates us. He takes us from that dead condition we were in to making us alive in Christ. There's a spiritual quickening that changes our nature, literally, from a dead spiritual nature to a live one. He baptizes us into union with Christ. Never possible before. Now we can be one with Christ and with other people that he has brought into that family. That's what this baptism thing is about. Then he indwells us. And that's a whole leads to a whole list of things. He, he guides us. He, he teaches us. He, he convicts us of things when we're wrong. But he comforts us when we're in pain in ways that we can never be comforted by anyone else. He intercedes for us in ways that we would never be able to actually pray to tell the Father what pain and anguish or concern is on our hearts and our minds. Then He gifts us and He empowers us to do things for His purpose. He makes us instruments of His to accomplish things that are absolutely amazing because He does it. And then there's one more thing that we can actually seek. That's a filling. These other things just happen because he came and he comes in and he does that. And then he actually says, the more you yield to me, the more you submit to me, the more you obey me, the more I will actually fill you to do things, specific tasks to accomplish when I tell you to do it. 
and you will be able to do it. I mean, it's just amazing what he does. All of these things are true, and, not but, and he is God. Talk about bumping into greatness, and we don't even realize it. The Holy Spirit, the living God, lives within you when you have given your life to Jesus Christ. Now, this is a little more important and a little more difficult for us to understand than we might even think because we don't know a lot about him. He's different. He's so different because he gives all the glory to the Son. In this beautiful relationship that exists in the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is is enigmatic. He's, He's elusive almost. His purpose in his existence is to raise up the Son. And then the Son gives glory to the Father. See Philippians 2, chapter f- verse 5 through 11. You can look and you can see the progression. Well, all that God did to raise up the Spirit, to raise up the Son so that He would give then all the glory to the Father. So the Holy Spirit is this amazingly different, submissive. And we struggle for words in this because He's no less equal and He's no less God. Wow. The point of this sobering passage is for us to understand who we're dealing with when we're dealing with the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that He's a person. The Holy Spirit's the comforter and guide and indweller and empowerer, empowerer, and He gives us gifts. And uh, though He is close and loving, He's still God. He's a person. So what does that mean if He's a person? Well, there's several things in Scripture that tell us that we can do because he's a person. We can grieve him. He can be made sorrowful. Now, I lived in Italy. Uh, they're forever on vacations over there. And um, so, you know, lots of mom and pop shops. You're going to go to find a place, and you'd show up, and there'd be a, a sign on the door. And, you know, the, there would be, you know, um, these words written on there. We'll be right back. Right. Right back could be tomorrow. I mean, you, you know, you, you, see, you see a sign, expect you show up, and you're like, oh, my word, you've got to be kidding. These people are always off. But there was a time early on in my time there that I walked up a door and there was a different thing written on there. I hadn't known what it was. And uh, when I was looking at this particular word for grieve the Holy Spirit this week, this is the word that jumped out in, to me in Greek because it's just like almost like the one in Italian. It's much the same. I walked up to this door and it said, Chiuso per luto, L-U-T-O, short little word. I'm like, oh, what's that? You know, so I'm annoyed and I pull out my little dictionary and I look it up. Somebody in the family died. They're closed because they've had a loss, because they're grieving. Well, then, of course, you feel like a, a real worm because, you know, you've gotten all annoyed and these people have actually suffered a loss. And that, that's what this, this word here is. That's this loss. The Holy Spirit's been made sad. And the context of that 
passage where it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5, talks about these things that we can do to make him sad. Unwholesome talk. What is not helpful for other people? Bitterness, rage, anger, slander. Instead of being compassionate and understanding and kind. You know that that close guide and that that one who lives within us and dwells within us is right there when we kind of slide back into the behaviors that we wish we didn't do. And he gets hurt. We hurt his feelings because he's a person. Now, this isn't meant to be a list of do's and don'ts to beat you over the head with as much as it's a a behavior because a person that you care for is standing right there. Better yet, a person that cares for you more than you can even know is right there. Do you ever uh, adjust the things that you say or do based upon who's there? I mean, I'll say any number of things unless my mother walks in the room, you know, or my grandmother. You know how those things get affected? Well, this is how we can hurt him. He's there. He can be quenched. The word's like extinguished. It's almost as if we've got an, you know, a fire extinguisher and, and he's ardent about something and we go and blow it out. That's in First Thessalonians 5. And the, the context there is all the work that he's doing and we become a wet blanket. Intentionally or unintentionally, we impede what he's doing. You don't ever want the Holy Spirit to tap you on the shoulder and go, excuse me, I'm working here. And yet, sometimes we do. He can be resisted. We're going to see this in a couple of chapters. In chapter 7, Stephen's given this great sermon and he really gets to the points of application. He starts looking at these guys going, and you are stiff-necked people. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. Now, the structure of that word is, it's a, it's, a, it's a perfect present. It continues to happen, and then he adds always. You're always doing this. You know what? That, that scares me, and it scares me because it means we can get used to doing this, resisting. We sense a prodding of God in our heart and in our mind, And we go, that's bad pizza. I don't want to do that. You know, that's just something I ate that, you know, isn't agreeing with me. And we become sin-seared Christians instead of sincere Christians. Because we resist more and more and we become calloused to his work. And then he can be lied to. And we see what happens when you do that. Now, fortunately... God had a lesson to teach the church in that day that apparently he's not carrying out to this day because I'm sure all of us are guilty of lying to the Holy Spirit. Some kind of intention that's hidden, some kind of motive that's skewed. See, none of these things are possible if he's some kind of energy or force. He's a person. And this is revelation, isn't it? This is our learning redefined by more of that. He's a person, and then he's also God, as in he knows. Now let's learn a little bit about what Ananias and Sapphira actually did here. In chapter 4, we learned that really courageous people have nothing to prove because they know that God's in control, that they have nothing to hide because they're doing what he wants, and they have nothing to lose because everything that they have is his. We looked at that, you remember? So... 
what did these guys do? At first blush, it would seem like they failed in the last one. In other words, they had, they had something to lose, so they didn't want to give it up. But more, look more closely at the passage. It's very interesting what Peter says to them in verse 4. You know that land that you had? That was yours, wasn't it? And then after you sold it, wasn't the money yours? It's theirs. Now, we all recognize that it belongs to God. Well, that's what I've been trying to tell you. Everything that you have belongs to God. He's just put it in your hands and asked you to steward it. Well, what did he want them to do with what they had in their hands that they might do for him? Do you know? I don't know. I'm not them. I wasn't there. We apparently know that God told Barnabas to sell the land and to put all the money at the apostles' feet. Is that what he told Ananias and Sapphira? I don't know. Only they know. Just like I can't, just like I can't tell you what to do with your money. God tells you what to do with your money and your time and your resources and the gifting that he's given you by the Holy Spirit. What does he want you to do with all that he has put in your hands? Wow. Only they knew what that was. And so the actual problem becomes apparent in verse 2 and verse 7 that with full knowledge of his wife, he kept some of the money back. And then in verse 7, is this the money he gave you? Yeah, that's what we got for the... They had something to hide more than they had something to lose. That was the actual problem. You see, he is God, as in he knows, and we have nothing to hide before him. And yet, that's exactly what we do, isn't it? Don't we do these things? We grieve him in the way that we behave. It's not about lists of do's and don'ts, but it's about displeasing that indwelling, comforting, guiding, loving God who's always there. And he promises to never leave you never forsake you and then we drift into little things that we do that we don't want to do and where did he go when we do that he didn't go anywhere he's right there and we hurt his feelings we sense we should do something and we extinguish it we resist it and we know it we impede what he's trying to do by stepping in the middle of of what he's trying to accomplish for those of us that are married, do, do we have conversations like Ananias and Sapphira did about what we should do with the things that he's put in our hands? Do you have a, a yours conversation about the things that he's given you and you decide what you're going to do with those? Does, does the ultimate owner of everything that you have become a conversation between, between the two of you about what you do with your resources? You should. I'm doing something on uh, Sunday nights that um, I'm only doing because God prompted the Holy Spirit, prompted my wife. And I kept blowing it off. I'm a sincere Christian like anybody else. 
Like, well, she didn't understand. We got this whole plan. She's not a part of the staff. We got all this thing going on. Don't worry about it. This is all in the summer. And she's like, oh, I think that there's this thing we should do. And I'm like, you don't, you don't get it. You don't, don't worry about it. It's all going to come together. And it, but she kept having the conversation because the Holy Spirit was prompting. And finally, you know, knucklehead gets it. And man, am I glad we had the conversation about one more area of responsibility and stewardship that we could do and should do. Have you ever made a faith promise? We talk about that in the spring when we come to uh, our missions time. The only way that we can support all these people that we have around the world that we're investing in is by people making a promise above and beyond any giving they give to the church uh, in, in any other way, to give to that so those people can continue to be there. And we call it a faith promise. Well, what's a faith promise? A promise, a faith promise is a promise not based on calculations. Oh, let's see, I got now carry the thing. Yeah, I can afford that. That's a promise so you'll do something you don't even know how you'll do, but God wants you to do it. Now, I don't know what it is. Only you can know what it is. But he'll prompt you and he'll touch your heart. He'll say, will you give that? And then trust me to provide it. So a couple weeks ago, uh, First Choice is uh, a a ministry that we're a part of here. And they had a big fundraising banquet. And um, I'm on the board, so I know the the lady that runs the whole thing. And she told me uh, they raised over half a million dollars at that uh, thing the other night. And... um, and she, most of the people that called her back said, I gave more money that night than I ever intended on doing. Um, I'm one of them, right? And he took the number I had in my head and tripled it. And, uh, and, and what was so cool was that she said she had a guy who called her and said, man, that was a step of faith. But I wrote the check and I walked into work the next day and received a bonus for exactly that much money. you ever do that? Because the Holy Spirit prompts you to do something. Can I tell you what it is? I can't. He can. The problem is we don't listen. We haven't attuned ourselves to what that might be. We fake it. That's another thing we do. We lie to the Holy Spirit by, by kind of being one thing and then making ourselves look like another thing. You see... When the Holy Spirit came, he changed everything. I told you that. (laughs) That's why I wanted to unwrap this one piece at a time. And he redefined the way we gather by increase, numerically and spiritually, this increase I've been talking about. He redefined our serving by proximity because he came so close. And now, (laughs) now he's beginning to redefine our learning by revelation. There is so much more to learn. And he's speaking again. And we're not done yet. So what in this passage is revealed that we need to learn? The point of this rather sobering passage is to understand who we're dealing with when we consider the Holy Spirit. He is a person and he is God. So what would that mean practically for us? A few things as we wrap this up. First of all, he's to be obeyed because he's God. (laughs) Now, I get the difficulty of discerning sometimes. 
Sometimes we don't know if it's really the Holy Spirit or just an emotional high or, or somebody who's trying to manipulate. You know, we always come up with those things. Okay, fine. Be discerning. But what about the times when we really do know that it's God? I mean, there's plenty of times, I think, that we know that God wants us to do something and, and we don't obey. Quit bringing up the excuses of the, you know, I'm not too sure about that one. What about the times when you do know? No excuses, no dismissing. How much do we, do we pray specifically about what he wants us to do? And I mean specifically, so that the more specific you pray, the more specific his answers can be. And you can know how he really wants you to go. You know, when, when you kind of pray generally... You know, he's supposed to say, okay, so what kind of general answer are you going to get out of that one? But the more specific we become, the more his answers can be specifically confirming, one way or another. So he's to be obeyed because he's God. He's to be trusted because he's a person, and this is what's encouraging. He understands you. He knows you in the depth of who you are. The fact of the matter is, the Holy Spirit is the most active person of the Godhead right now. The Father cast the plan and unfolded that plan through the Old Testament. He sends His Son to become a man and to take our place and die on the cross and rise from the dead. And then He returns to heaven and He sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the most active person of the Godhead right now in our lives. And the thing that's so great about Him is that He gets you. He understands you. He's a person. He doesn't just kind of understand you because he came near you. You're made in his image, so he gets you more than you even know. That's why he can help intercede for you in ways that you can't even express and can give you comfort and strength like you've never received because he knows you. So you can trust him. So he should be trusted because he's a person. And then finally, this is important, he's to be depended upon because he can. Two times in the passage, it says that the people were filled with fear because of what happened. Duh! (laughs) Is that going to happen to me next week? You know? Um, Honey, how much did you write on that check? (laughs) You know? uh, Imagine the fear. But there's a couple kinds of fear in the New Testament, uh, in, in the Greek language, as they, as, they, uh, as they wrote the New Testament, one of them is a negative fear, of course, um, that's a cowardice, and it's never in a good sense. We see it in Timothy. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. But then there's this other fear. You can imagine it's here. It's a good fear. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a big fear fear. It's actually like a mega fear. There's this reverential fear, a wholesome dread of displeasing God. Really, I don't want to do that. It's used in Romans chapter 8 verse 15 where it says, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Now, let me give you the simple translation of that verse. That's my dad. And he can. You ever play that little game as a kid in the, in the playground? Well, my dad can do this. Well, my dad can do this. 
That's the picture here. We've been given a spirit of sonship that says you're the son of the almighty living God. And he can. So he should be depended upon because he can. Because there's nothing he can't do. And you'll notice in the passage, these people were not paralyzed by fear. The next verses go on to talk, we'll get there next week, about all the amazing things that happened. They weren't like so afraid that they went, oh no, we'll never do anything. They were empowered by this reverential love for a God who's so amazing that he can. And therefore, I don't want to let him down. I want to do whatever he wants me to do. You should write this down. You need to be gripped by a wholesome dread of displeasing him and a deep knowledge that he is able. You should be gripped by a wholesome dread of displeasing him and at the same time, a deep knowledge that he is able, that he can. And this is called growing your faith. Why do we always think we're done? Why do we always think we've made it? We're not done until the trumpet sounds. You know, forget the fat lady. It's not until the trumpet sounds. And we're supposed to be growing and learning and becoming all that he wants us. And we're supposed to be stretching. And it's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be empowering, strengthening, changing. We've bumped into greatness and we don't even realize all that he wants to do. I talked to a pastor friend of mine this week and he said to me, I'm tired of living as if God doesn't exist and faith doesn't matter. Because it's not true. God does exist and he wants to grow your faith because it really does matter. So what's he prompting you to do? What are you doing that's breaking his heart? What are you resisting that he wants you to follow through on? What conversations should you be having about what he's given you that he wants you to use for his purposes? Don't expect the Holy Spirit to coddle you, says Jack Levinson. Not if you want to grow spiritually. The Holy Spirit understands that we learn best against all odds in hardship, in a hostile desert, rather than on the peaceful banks of the Jordan River. Let's pray. Thank you for this reminder, Lord, and for this passage, and I thank you that you don't strike us dead for when we fake it in front of you. But I pray that we would be no less gripped with a wholesome terror of displeasing you in any way. And that we would know at the depth of our being that you are able, that you can. And so we depend. Give us the grace to trust you more, to do more, to resist you less, and to follow you as best we can. In Jesus' name, amen.